The Blue Castle by L. M. Montgomery Chapter 1 If it had not rained on a certain May morning, Valancy Sterling's whole life would have been entirely different. She would have gone with the rest of her clan to Aunt Wellington's engagement picnic. Dr. Trent would have gone to Montreal. But it did rain. You shall hear what happened to her because of it. Vanessa waked, wakened early, a lifeless, hopeless hour, just preceding dawn. She had not slept very well. One does not sleep well sometimes when one is 29 on the morrow and unmarried. Community in connection where the unmarried are simply those who have failed to get a man. Deerwood and the Stirlings had long since relegated Vanessa to hopeless old maidenhood. But Vanessa herself had never quite relinquished a certain pitiful, shamed little hope that romance would come her way, uh, come her way yet. Never until this wet, horrible morning, when she wakened to the fact she was twenty-nine and unsought by any man. Aye, there lay the sting. Vanessa did not mind so much being an old maid. At all, she thought being an old maid couldn't possibly be too dreadful of being married to an Uncle Wellington or an Uncle Benjamin or even an Uncle Herbert. What hurt her was he had never had a chance to be anything but an old maid. No man had ever desired her. The tears came into her eyes. She lay there alone in faintly graying darkness. She dared not let herself cry as hard. She wanted to for two reasons. Two reasons. She was afraid that crying might bring on another attack of that pain around the heart. She had a spell of it after she had got into bed. Rather worse than she, any she had yet. She was afraid her mother would notice her red eyes at breakfast and keep at her with minute, persistent, mosquito-like questions regarding the cause of thereof. Suppose, thought Vanessa, with ghastly grin, I answered, the plain truth. I am crying because I cannot get married. Horrified mother would be, though she is ashamed every day of her life, of an old maid daughter. But of course, appearance should be kept up. It is not fancy. Should could hear a mother's prime, directorial voice asserting, "It's not a mainly to think about men." The thought of her mother's expression made fancy laugh, for she had a sense of human nobody. Their clan suspected. For that matter, there were a good many things that Vanessa had no that nobody suspected. Her laughter was very superficial. Presently she lay there, huddled furtive little figure, listening to the rain pouring down outside and watching sick disgust, the chill, merciless light creeping into her so- ugly, sordid so- room. She knew the ugliness of the, the room, that room by heart, knew it and hated it. The yellow painted floor, the one hideous hooked rug by the bed with a grotesque hooked dog on it, always grinning at her when she woke the faded dark red paper, seeing discolored by old leaks and crossed by cracks, the narrow pinch of the west stand, a brown paper length parent grin, the purple roses on it, a spotted old glass, the cracks across it popped up with an inadequate dressing table, jar of ancient potpourri made by a mother in a, in a, 
in her mythical honeymoon, the shell covered box with one burst, arm burst corner, which Cousin Stickles had made in an equally mythical girlhood, a beady pincushion, half its breed frayed fringe, gone, and one stiff yellow chair, a faded old motto, gone but not forgotten, worked in coloured yarns, that grand, great grandmother Sterling's grim old face, old photographs of ancient relatives, long banished from the room below. There are only two pictures of not of relatives, one of the old chromo of a puppy sitting on a rainy doorstep, a picture always made Vanessa unhappy, flown little dog crouched on the doorstep, driving rain. Why didn't someone open the door and let him in? There are pictures of faded, past-putted, engraving of Queen Louise, coming down the stairway with Aunt Wellington, had lavishly given her her tenth birthday. For nineteen years she had looked and it hated it, beautifully smug, self-satisfied Queen Louise, but he never dared destroy it or remove it. Mother, cousin Stickles, would have been aghast, or his fantasy invariably distressed it, in her own in her thoughts, would have had a fit. Every room in the house was ugly, of course, but downstairs appearances were kept up somewhat. There was no money for rooms nobody ever saw, but as he sometimes felt, she could have done something could have done something for a room herself, even without money, if she were permitted. Her mother negated every timid suggestion that vanity did not persist. And pan- vanity did not persist. Vanity never persisted. She was afraid to. Her mother could not broke opposition. Mrs. Sterling had sulked for days, if offended, with the airs of insulted duchess. The only thing vanity ate about her room was that she could be alone there at night to cry as she wanted to. Not, after all, or did it matter if a room which was used for nothing except sleeping and dressing in were ugly? Vanessa was never permitted to stay alone in a room for any other purpose. People wanted to be alone, so Mrs. Frederick Sterling and Cousin Stickles believed could only want to be alone for some sinister purpose. But rooms in Blue Castle was everything a room should be. Vanessa so cowed and subdued and overridden, and snubbed in her early real life, was wont to let herself go rather spellily her daydreams. Nobody in the Sterling clan or its ramifications expected this least of all her mother and cousin Stickles. They never knew that Vanessa had two homes, the ugly red brick box of a home on Elm Street, a blue castle Spain. Vanessa had lived spiritually in the blue castle ever since she could remember. She had been a very tiny child when she found herself possessed of it. Always when she shut her eyes, could see it plainly with turrets and banners on a plain, pine-clad mountain height, wrapped in its faint blue loveliness, lonely loveliness against the stun- sunset skies, fair and unknown land. Everything ever- wonderful and beautiful was in the castle, jewels that queens might have worn robes of moonlight and fire crouches of roses of gold, long flights of shallow marble steps of giant, with great white urns and with slender misclad maidens going up and down in courts marble pillared, where shivering fountains fell and nightingales sung among them, myrtles, king halls of mirrors that reflected only handsome knights and lonely, lovely women. 
They said they loveliest of all, but those men whose glance men died. All that supported her through the boredom of the days, hope were going to dream spree at night. Most of them, if not on all, Sterling's would have died of horror. They knew half the things Valency did in a blue castle. Over one thing, she had quite a few lovers in it. Oh, only one at a time. One who wooed her with all the magic adore of his age of shivery, and won her after long devotion and many deeds of dare doing. Wedded her with pomp and sacraments in the great banner hung chapel, blue chap castle. At twelve, this lover was a fair lad with golden curls and heavenly blue eyes. Fifteen, he was tall and hem- tall and dark and pale, but still necessarily handsome. At twenty, he was a stagnantic, dreamy, spiritual. Twenty-five, he had a clean-cut jaw, smiling, grim, slightly grim, a face strong and rugged rather than handsome. As he never grew older than twenty-five in a blue castle, but recently, very recently, I heard a hero of reddish, tawny hair, a twisted smile, a mysterious past. I don't say that as he deliberately murdered his lovers, as he outgrew them, but simply faded away as another came. Things are very convenient in this respect in blue castles. But on this morning of the day of fate, Benazie could not find the key to a blue castle. Red, he pressed on her, too hardly, barking at her heels like a maddening little dog. She twenty-nine, lonely, undesired, or favoured, the only homely girl in a handsome clan, with no past, no future. Far as she could look back, life was drab and colourless, with not one single crimson or purple spot anywhere. Far as she could look forward, it seemed certain to be just the same to she was nothing but a subtle tree. Little withered clutch leaf clinging to a wintry bow, bow. The moment she, when a woman, the moment when a woman realizes that she's nothing to live for, neither love, duty, purpose, or nor hope, holds for her the bitterness of death. I just have to go on living because I can't stop. I must have. To, I may have to live eighty years for vanity in a kind of panic. All horribly long lived. It sickens me to think of it. She was glad it was raining, or rather, she was dreary satisfied that it was raining. There would be no picnic that day. It's annual picnic, picnic whereby Uncle and Aunt Wellington aren't always thought of them in succession. Eventually, celebrated their engagement. A picnic 30 years before had been of late years a veritable nightmare for Vancey. It's an impish coincidence. The same day as her birthday, always he had passed twenty-five. Nobody let her forget it. Much as she hated going to the picnic, it would never have occurred to her to rebel against it. There seemed to be nothing of the revolutionary in her nature. She knew exactly that what each everyone would say to her at the picnic. Uncle Wellington, whom she disliked and despised, you know, he fulfilled the highest daring operation, marrying money. Was would say to her in a pig's whisper, not thinking of getting married yet, my dear, and go off in a bellow of laughter, which he even eventually concluded with his dull remarks, Aunt Mellington, of whom Vanessie stood in great abject awe, would tell her about the olives, his chiffon dress and seals, 
last devoted letter. Anything would have to look at it, uh, look to please his interests. To address a letter had been hers or else Aunt Wellington would have been offended. Anything had long ago decided she would rather offend God than Aunt Wellington, Aunt Wellington, because God would might forgive her, but Aunt Wellington never would. Aunt Albania, enormously fat with variable habit of always referring to her husband as he, if he were the only male creature in the world who could never forget that she had been a great beauty in her youth, could condole with fantasy and her shallow, shallow skin. I don't know why all the girls t- today are so sunburnt. When I was a girl, my skin was rose, roses and cream. I counted the prettiest girl, Canada, my dear. Perhaps Uncle Herbert wouldn't say anything. Perhaps he would remark jokingly, How fat you're getting, Dross. And everybody would laugh over the excessive grimness of your poor, scrawny little Dross getting fat. Handsome, seldom Uncle James, solemn Uncle James, whom Venice disliked, respected because he was deputed. A very clever, I was therefore on the clan oracle, brains being one, too plentiful in a sterling connection, will probably mark the owl-like sarcasm that won him his reputation. Suppose you're busy with your hope chest these days. Uncle Benjamin would ask some some of these adorable conundrums between wheezy chuckles and answering them himself. There's a difference between dross and a mouse. Mouse wishes to harm the cheese. Dos wishes to charm the he's. Fancy heard him ask that riddle fifty times. Every time she wanted to throw something at him, she didn't. She never did. First place, the stones simply did not throw things. In second place, Uncle Benjamin was wealthy and childless old widower. Widower, and Fancy had been brought up in the fear of admission of his money. If she offended, he would cut her out. Him, she would cut her out the wheel. Supposing she was in it, Fancy did not want to be cut out of Uncle Benjamin's will. She had been poor all her life, knew all the gaining bitterness of it, so she enjoyed his riddles, and even smiled, tortured little smiles over them. Aunt Isabel, downright and disagreeable, as the east wind would criticise her in some way, Fancy could not predict just how, but Aunt Isabel never repeated her criticism. She found something new with each, with each jab, you every time. Aunt Isabel prided herself in saying that she thought what well, she thought. She didn't like it. But she didn't like it so well when the other per, other per, people said it. What they thought of her to her. Fancy never said what she thought. Cousin Georgina named off a great 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 grand great, a great great grandmother who had been named after George the Fourth would recount doomlessly. The names all relatives and friends who had died since the last picnic wonder which of us would be the first to go next. Unpresently com- competent. Aunt Marie Miltilda, Aunt Mildred would talk endlessly of her husband, her odious prodigies of baby to Vanessa, because Vanessa would be the only one she could f- find to put up with it. For the same reason that Cousin Gladys, really first Cousin Gladys, once removed, according to the strict way in which the stage to a related relationship, a tall, thin lady, admitted she had a sensitive disposition, would describe minutely the tortures of a neurosis. And Olive the Wonder Girl, to whom the stunning claim had everything, but as he had not, beauty, popularity, love, 
show off her beauty and pursue her popularity and flaunt her diamond signet of love, fantasy days, envious eyes. There will be none of all this today. There will be no packing of the uplifts of teaspoons. Packing up was always left for fantasy because of the stickles. A month every month for once, six years ago, silver shoes teaspoon from Aunt Vanessa's wedding set been lost. Aunt Vanessa never heard lost a set silver shoes teaspoon. Ghost appeared bankroll. They like got every substance family feast. Oh yes, Vanessa knew exactly what that picnic would be like. She blessed the rain, has saved her from it. There'll be no picnic this year. Aunt Wellington could not celebrate on the scale, could dead itself. She would have no celebration at all. Thank whatever gods there were for that. Since there would be no picnic, Vanessa made up her mind. So if the rain held up in the afternoon, she'd go to the library and get another John Foster, get another of John Foster's books. Vanessa was never allowed to read novels. But John Foster's books were not novels, they're nature books, so the librarian told her, Mrs. Frederick, Frederick, telling all about the woods and birds and bugs, things like that, you know. Fancy was allowed to read them, and a protest for it was only too evident she enjoyed them too much, permissible, even laughable, to read, to prove your mind, your religion, but as a book, but that book that was enjoyable was a dangerous. Fancy did not know whether her mind was being approved or not. She felt vaguely that she had come across John Foster's books years ago. Life might have been a different thing for her. It seemed to her to yield glimpses of a world into which she might have been once might once have entered. But the door has forever barred her now. But only within the last year that John Foster's book had been in Deerwood Library, though the librarian told Vanessa he had never he had been a well known writer for several years. Where did he live, Fancy had asked. Nobody knows. From his books, he must be a Canadian. But no more information can be had. He publishes won't say a word. Quite likely, John Foss is a non plume. His books are so popular, he can't keep them in. We can't keep them in at all. In, in, at all. No, I really can't see what people find in them to break them. I think they're wonderful, said Fancy timidly. Oh well, Miss Clarkson smiled in patronising patronizing fashion. They relegated Van Nancy's opinions to limbo. I can't say I care much for bugs myself, as certainly Foster seems to know all there is to know about them. As he didn't know if he cared much for bugs either. It's not John Foster's uncanny knowledge of all creatures and insects life. In Florida, she could only say there's some tensing law of mystery never revealed some hint of great secret. Just a little further on, some faint, exclusive, elusive echo of lonely, forgotten things. Dolphin's magic was unfindable. She, yes, she would get a new foster book. It was a month since she had thistle harvest, so surely Mother would not object. But he read it, read it four times. She knew whole passages off by heart. Then she almost and she almost thought she would go and see Dr. Trent about the queer pain and heart. He had come rather often lately, and palpitations were becoming annoying, but to speak of an occasional dizzy moment and quick shortness of breath. She, but she could, but she could, 
could she go to see him without telling anyone? His most daring fault. None of Stanley's ever consulted the doctor without holding a family council and getting Uncle James' approval. Then they went to Dr. Ambrose Marsh of Port Lawrence, uh, who had married second cousin Andeline Sterling. And as he disliked Dr. Ambrose Marsh, and besides, she could not get to Port Lawrence, 15 miles away, without being taken there. She did not want anyone to know about her heart. There would be such a fuss made, and every member of the family would come down and talk it over and advise her, and caution her and warn her, and tell her horrible tales of aunt, great aunts and cousins, three times removed, for being just like that, and dropped dead without a moment's warning yet, my dear. Aunt of Isabel would remember that she had always said Dross looked like a girl who could have tr- trouble, so pinched and peeped always. Uncle Wendon would take it as a personal insult when no studying ever had heart disease before. Georgina would forbade, forbade in perfectly honourable uh, sides. Poor dear little Ross, is it long for this world? I'm afraid, Cousin Gladys would say, why, my heart has been like that for years. A tone implied no one else any business even to have a heart. And Olive, Olive for merely looked beautiful, superior and disgustingly healthy. If, as if to say, why all this fuss of a faded superfruitery like dross when you have me? Fancy felt she couldn't tell anyone lest she had to. She felt quite sure that she was nothing at all. She felt quite sure there was nothing at all. So she won with her heart. No need of all the of all the ponder that would ensure soon she mentioned it. She would just sip up quietly and see Dr. Trent the very that very day, as for his bill, she had the two hundred dollars her father put in the bank for her the day she was born. She was never allowed to use the interest of this, but she would she would secretly take out enough to pay Doctor Trent. Doctor Trent was a gruff, outspoken, absent-minded old fellow, but he was but he was recognised authority on heart disease. He was only a general practitioner in the out of the world Darewood. Dr. Trent was only over 70, and there had no been rumours he meant to retire soon. None of Stunning Clan had ever gone to him since he had told Gordon Gallus ten years before that her nutritus was all imaginary. Neurosis was all imaginary, imaginary and she actually enjoyed it. You couldn't patronise a doctor who thought you'd your first cousin. That's a move like that. Not to mention he was a Presbyterian, which, with all his stunnings, went... Dragon Church, Percy, between the devil of disloyalty, the clan and deep sea of fuss and clatter, a vice, for she would take a chance with the devil.